Father, we are growing, we are reaching out, we're striving to do more with what you've given us and be a more effective representative in this part of the city and in this part of the world. And there are days, Father, I know that we seek to serve you in the right way and we we step out in faith and you multiply our efforts and it is a great blessing to us to see you working through us. And there are also days, I know, Father, that we sit still, knowing that you are Lord and patient listening. I just pray, Father, we'll never confuse one for the other. We'll never act when we should be listening. And we'll never sit still when you've given us a call to respond. And let us study this morning, Father, with a heart seeking to do both things according to your will. In Jesus' name, amen. We're in Genesis chapter 19. And I thought as we go back into 19, the last couple of weeks, I was gone, of course, and then the holiday left some people out of town. So I thought maybe it's worth a few minutes of of review, just remember where we've been going back, in fact, into the previous chapter, chapter 18, and then how that fits into chapter 19. And 18, God was beginning this interesting scene in order to teach Abraham something. God wants Abraham to understand better God's character and his nature, because he said in chapter 18 that Abraham would be a man God was preparing to raise up a people, a people who would follow him and understand him. And if that's to be true, God has to teach Abraham about who God is in total, in full form. That he is both a God of mercy, but also a God of justice. He is a God of loving kindness, but also a God of wrath. And he's a God of grace and a God of judgment. That's the full nature of God. That's the full character of God. If we only know one side of him, we don't know him. And what better way to teach Abraham the lessons about God, about the fact that he will hold the unrighteous under penalty for their sin while simultaneously granting mercy to his children by faith and rescuing them from the coming judgment? What better way to teach that than to let Abraham see God at work in those neighboring cesspools of Sodom and Gomorrah? And so God is now presenting to Abraham a plan in which God intends to inspect the cities, determine if they are as sinful as he has heard, which we know, of course, that's a foregone conclusion. And God lays out this plan so that Abraham, in his own mind, can think through the process and say to himself, there are both sinners in those cities, but there's also some saints, my nephew Lot, to be specific. There are men who pervert God's creation, but there's at least one man who stands opposed to sin. And as Abraham thinks through that reality, He begins to ask himself, how will God deal with both groups at the same time and yet be fair to both groups, be true to his character in both cases? And so God announces in Abraham's presence, I'm going to judge the city. And then he waits for Abraham to take the next step. And what Abraham does next propels forward this whole story, this whole encounter. Abraham prays that the Lord would spare the entire city. If only a handful, ten, ultimately, were found righteous. Now, the Lord agreed to that, but what was really interesting, if you remember from last week, is that Abraham prayed for the wrong thing. What he wanted was to save Lot and his family. What he prayed for was to save the whole city if ten righteous were found. Why did Abraham do that? Well, as we looked at it last week, we came to conclude that what Abraham lacked was an appreciation for the power of God to remain true to his character and nature while at the same time carrying out perfect justice. Remember the last time there were kings who had come into town to exact justice against these cities for their rebellion. Those kings from the north had come in and just taken the whole city captive. And in that judgment, 
the righteous man Lot had been caught up in it unfairly. So to Abraham's thinking, God will act in probably the same way. There's a city of sinners who deserve his judgment. And he has announced that he is prepared to bring it. But wait, my my nephew, my righteous nephew Lot is in that city. How can God let this happen to a righteous person? And he assumes that the only hope he has for saving Lot is to save the whole city with him because God will either take all or none. But here's God's opportunity to teach Lot about the power of God to discriminate between the believer and the unbeliever when judgment comes. And as we study this story, now as it moves into chapter 19, this week and next, pay attention to how God shows his power to discriminate the unrighteous from the righteous when he brings judgment. Because in that story is a clear, stunning picture of what he will be prepared to do in a future day of judgment concerning both those he calls his children and the world who does not know him. Let's look at chapter 19. We'll begin in verse 1. Now the two angels came to Sodom in the evening as Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed down with his face to the ground. And he said, Now behold, my lords, please turn aside into your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise early and go on your way. They said, however, No, but we shall spend the night in the square. Yet he urged them strongly, so that they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he prepared a feast for them and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. I'm hoping, for all the years we've taught through various books of the Bible, you're starting to pick up on some of the trends for how I break down the text and how we study it together. Because I'm hoping at this point there's some thoughts floating through your head about just how similar this chapter sounds to the beginning of the last chapter. Did you notice some of those similarities? For example, as chapter 18 opened, we found Abraham sitting, but in the doorway of his tent. Hebrews tells us, in fact, that Abraham's steadfast determination to remain in a tent, to remain a nomad, when in that day and in his culture, nomadic lifestyle was not the norm. He does this as a way of testifying to the culture around him that he was waiting for a reward that would come in a heavenly future. And he was not expecting his reward from God to be in this temporal moment. Now, Lot, on the other hand, though, is sitting in the doorway to the city, or the gate, as it says here. One man sitting in the doorway to his tent, the other man sitting in the doorway to the city. Now, the gate of a city, as it's described here, in ancient times, cities had walls to protect them from invaders, of course, but these walls weren't simply like a fence These walls were very thick and high, and they were thick enough that at points where you created an entry, a doorway into the city, you could create a multi-chambered room inside the wall because the wall had so much depth to it. So as I open the the front doors to the city and you walk in, you actually find yourself surrounded in this chamber for at least a, a time before you come through all the way to the other side and another set of doors lets you into the city. And in the space between those two doors in this chamber you would have people conducting business, official business, with the city magistrates. And this grew up out of a need to protect the city from the wandering stranger, someone who may be in the area of the city and needs to do business with the city, but they're not known by the inhabitants of the city. You don't just let them walk all the way into the city. You don't know who they are. They could be uh, uh, people coming as aggressors. 
So you would leave the door to the city closed and the outer door to the wall would be open and people could come into that chamber. They could do business with the officials, the officials of the city, the magistrates, the judges, the elders would come into the gate and they would meet there like a court. And then all the city business would be conducted in that gate without ever having to let people into the city proper. So when we say that Lot is sitting in the gate, the phrase means literally serving or as an official of the city. This means Lot has become one of the city leaders running the city from within the gate. Lot wasn't living a testimony of resting in the Lord like his uncle is. This is a man who lives a life that's embraced the world. He's a part of it. He's helping run it. Now, the next parallel you notice is in the way the Lot is seen greeting these visitors. These two men that he's greeting, of course, we know are the two men that came with the Lord earlier and ate with uh, Abraham in chapter 18. So they're angels. But they appear as though they're men. They look like men. And as Lot gets up, it says he rises from his place in the city, goes to meet them, bows down to meet these two men. Now, you might ask as well here, like we did back in chapter 18, did Lot recognize them as angels? Is that why he's doing this? Well, like we said back with Abraham earlier, probably not. Probably what he's doing is the thing that's typical for an Eastern culture to do, showing great interest in visitors and showing great honor toward them. But I doubt it was typical for strange men to just wander into Sodom for an occasional sightseeing tour. In fact, I would think that any man who ventured into this city was asking for serious trouble and knew it. So Lot is probably trying to coax these men into accompanying him in order to give them safety. Look at some of the things Lot says, and you can hear it in his words. In verse 2, he says, Now, behold, my lords, please turn aside into your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. And then he says, so that you can get up early and leave on your way. That would not have been a good host normally. This is a man saying, quickly, before they see you, get into my house, and then we'll get you fed and get you out before they notice you've ever come. That's what he's probably worried about. I think this may even explain why Lot is sitting in the gate. Perhaps it's been his intent to sit in the place where visitors would find themselves walking into Sodom precisely so that he can rescue them whenever he can get the opportunity. That would explain a lot here. It would explain why he's serving in this role. He's wanting to intercept the potential victim for the kind of of assault, sexual assault, that was typical for the city of Sodom. Lot, for his part, may have been given the right to have this role because it was his uncle, you may remember, who saved the day the last time the city got into trouble with the kings of the north. That may have earned Lot some some power in the city. So he extends this offer to the angels and he says, I want you to come and I want you to stay with me. I want you to eat with me. Now, that sounds a lot like chapter 18 as well. Abraham extended a very similar offer to the Lord when he saw the Lord visiting him. But the reasons they're doing it are so different. In Abraham's case, he wanted to show honor to his guests. He wanted to make them feel comfortable. He wanted them to make, make them feel welcome. He wanted the benefit of their presence. He wanted the, the honor that comes with being a host. And then after he realized he was dealing with the Lord and with the Lord's angels, it only magnified his honor. It only made him feel that much more privileged. But he had that intent from the beginning. Now, Lot, on the other hand, he extends this invitation to preserve the visitor's honor. Not to enhance his own, but to save theirs. And then look at some other interesting parallels. In the case of Abraham, the Lord agreed 
quite quickly, yes, I'd love to come stay with you. But in Lot's case, the angels initially answered no, and they, they said something that must have just struck fear in his heart. They said, we're just going to go sleep on the street in the city square and see what happens. He says, it doesn't say what he said, but it says he urged them not to. Look, if there's one thing you don't do in Sodom is go sleep out on the street at night. You're not going down there. You're staying with me. But notice how Lot serves them. And in particular, what does he give them? Unleavened bread. Now, unleavened bread, and many of you may remember this from when we have uh, performed a Seder meal here in the past, but unleavened bread is like a cracker, for lack of a better comparison. It doesn't have any yeast in it. And the reason it doesn't have any yeast is because you're in a hurry, presumably. Or you have some reason why you don't want to put yeast in it and give time for the dough rise and create what we think of as bread, typically. So you just deal with flat, hard crackers instead. Now, in chapter 18, when Abraham receives the Lord, what does he say to Sarah? He tells Sarah specifically to make bread cakes, and he emphasizes you need to knead them. Now, when we looked at this last time, I made a joke about the fact that it seems odd that he's running around telling Sarah how to make bread. You'd think she'd look at her husband and say, I've got this, okay, I, you know, I'm, I'm good with bread making, I've done it before. Now we understand why Moses captured that detail in the text. The contrast is now available to us. Where Abraham was able to tell his guests, relax, we're going to take time. We're going to take time, in fact, to let my wife knead dough with yeast and then allow time for it to rise so that you have bread cakes. The emphasis on the word cake there is to make sure that we know we're talking about risen dough. But here, Lot is under so much stress and pressure and worry and anxiety that he has to move this meal along quickly and he insists on unleavened bread for his guests. Do you feel a difference in these two stories? And I don't just mean in the fact that the details are obviously in contrast, but don't you get the impression that the energy and the blessing is flowing in opposite directions between these two accounts? For example, in Abraham's case, you see this man who is pious, obedient, serving in a peaceful setting, resting in his tent, ready to rescue the Lord and, or to receive the Lord, rather. And in the midst of that receiving of the Lord, he receives the blessings. All the energy, all of the movement of blessings seems to be from God to him. It's a great feeling, isn't it? And then you look at Lot. Lot is sitting in the city Whereas in the middle of the day, Abraham was resting. That's like you and I taking a day off from work. In the middle of Lot's day, he's hard at work. Working for the wrong thing, I should add. For the city of Sodom. In the world. And he's watching. And he's anxious. And he's worried. And he sees someone coming. And now he worries about them. And he has to think about, how do I save them? And he runs to try to save them. And he has to argue and urge them. And pull them into his house. And quickly make a meal. And hopefully you can get out of here quickly. And... The whole energy is outward. He's trying to save them. He's trying to work to, to prevent something negative from happening. And, and the whole time, the Lord's absent in this scene. I mean, the angels are there, but you don't feel the Lord working to bless Lot at all. You just feel this man who's worn down and worried and under stress. Abraham, calm. Lot, hurry. And this contrast is so remarkable because we know from the testimony of the New Testament, both of these men are believers. Both of these men are saved by grace. Both are men of faith. Both knew the Lord. Both trusted in his promises of faith. And yet these two guys are living opposite worlds, opposite lives. 
Look at verse 4. Before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, surrounded the house, both young and old, all the people from every quarter. And they called to Lot and said to him, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may have relations with them. Let's stop there. The evening's late, we're told. It's almost time for sleep. When Lot's house is suddenly surrounded, and we're told these are the men of the city, seeking visitors, seeking the men who've come to visit. Now, I would say this clearly tells us Sodom didn't get visitors very often, and for obvious reasons. Because this city, in just a few hours, has managed to organize men from all quarters, it says, meaning from every place in the city, young and old, so for every station in life. And they have come to this one house. They've actually had time in just a few hours to know there were visitors, know where they went, get the word out, and find a group of people interested in coming to this place. The degree of depravity here is just stunning. I know we're, we're living in bad times, right? We all know that. But I don't think we see this hardly at all. I've rarely have ever heard of anything like this happening routinely. It's, a, it's newsworthy even now if it does. Truly, this, this city had reached the depths of the, of the human heart. And it's particularly sad to see that this group included both young and old. That's a particularly strong indictment from the culture. Not even age had brought wisdom and discretion. So from outside their home, these men have gathered and they demand through the door, yelling at Lot, to bring those visitors out. They want them and they say they want them for relations, which I'm sure is everyone here understands. That means a gang rape of these men. It's just atrocious. And that's something even today we would only expect to see in prison, really. And even then, that's the worst of prison, right? And now you see clearly why Lot was so concerned for these men and for their safety and why he worked so hard to try to bring them into his own home. Now, how did Lot arrive at at this kind of life? How did he get here? Well, in a short, he entered into a bargain with the world. Here's the bargain he made. In return for allowing him to live among them and enjoy the worldly successes that Sodom apparently had and the comforts that came with living in that world, In exchange for all of that, he traded his peace of mind. He traded his quiet and tranquil life. And he traded a testimony of dependence on the Lord. Would you call that a good bargain? Paul tells us in 1 Thessalonians 4.11 that we are to make as our ambition to lead a quiet life. I find it interesting how rarely that ambition is listed in any conversation with somebody about their career goals, Christian or otherwise. What's your ambition, Steve? You know, I just want to live a quiet life. I prefer that I make very few waves. People don't know my name. I serve the Lord quietly behind the scenes. Well, good luck with that, Steve. How often do we hear that conversation, right? Particularly among men, I have to confess, men are career-driven so often, and our, our goals are often quite different than that. Even Christian men, we may ser- seek to serve the Lord, but then sometimes we get caught up in the, the attention that comes with that. It's dangerous. And while Lot's experience is certainly an extreme example, and I don't mean to say that with what we see here in Lot's life, each of us are somehow in danger of repeating what Lot is experiencing. This is extreme. I mean, the whole story of Lot is extreme. But I do think despite its extremity, it's an accurate representation of the challenges that we face, that believers face, 
when we marry ourselves to the world in any respect. Lot made a choice, and he made multiple choices, choice after choice after choice, to live like an unbeliever, rather than to live in ways that typify God's people. And he, in the course of those decisions, he adopted a lifestyle. And he placed himself in harm's way. All the while, here's his uncle Abraham making opposite choices. And no one ever decides to be Lot in one day. You know, Lot didn't separate from his uncle, standing out there on the plains near Shechem and looking out to the land around them and and deciding they needed to part ways to help their herds find enough grazing land. He didn't stand there in that moment and say, you know what I want to do? I want to go to that city, sit in the gate, be harassed by homosexual rapists and uh, try to live my days out under those circumstances. No, he never said that, of course. His first thought was, I want to live near the city because it's a nice fertile plain. Somewhere after that, he said, I want to live in the city. Somewhere after that, he said, you know what? I think I can help lead this city. And on and on. It's a slippery slope. The problem is we tell ourselves with each of those steps, this is far enough. I know how to handle it. I'm in control. I won't go any further than this. If Scripture is to be a guide to our feet, a lamp to our feet, I think this kind of a story compels us to take a short inventory for our own sake of of our choices in life. Every day, the choices we make. Each one of those is an opportunity to conform to God's word or to conform to the world. And they never stop. It's not as though one day we say to ourselves, I'm going to be like Abraham, and that puts an end to the discussion. Every day those choices are being made. Every day we have to make a decision. Sometimes I know we choose for God. Sometimes I know we choose for the world. We all have that back and forth pattern. But have you ever noticed that as you chase for what the world offers, life gets more hectic, life gets more stressful, Life gets more challenging. Now, obviously, believers are not immune from tests and trials and challenges. I don't want to set this up in some kind of Pollyannish contrast. That's just not real life. Believers can feel the challenges of faith. Believers can feel the trials of having a good testimony. Those things also happen. Obedience is not a guarantee of an easy life. But this is something I have noticed in my own walk, and I think Scripture backs me on this. The trials that come from faithful obedience will only serve to grow us in maturity and in peacefulness. The trials that leave us weakened and stressed and anxious are the trials that come from aligning with the world. I have yet to see a believer who when they face the trials that come with being a faithful ambassador for Christ, came away from those trials beaten down, crushed, discouraged, and unable to go forward. But I see a lot of people who are dealing with, either for their own sake because of their own choices or because of choices of others around them, are dealing with the stress that comes with being worldly. Look what James says in one, chapter 1. We studied this a few years ago. I know chapter 1, verse 2. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. He's talking there about trials that are directed at you by God to build you up. And he says, count that as joy. That's a good thing. The trouble that the world produces, though, wears us down, takes our energy, chokes off our maturity. And look at the two men we're talking about, by the way, if you just want to see the example playing out in front of us. You've got Abraham. He's strong. He's steady. He speaks with God. He hears from God. He meets with God on a regular basis. Somewhat regular. You have God here inviting Abraham to know him better. Inviting him to join his work. Blessing him both spiritually and materially to the degree God chooses. 
Now, yeah, Abraham makes a misstep once in a while. He goes to Egypt when he shouldn't. He lies about his wife. I mean, he's not a perfect guy. But God hasn't given up on him because his, his direction is toward God. And so the energy from God is toward him. Lot, on the other hand, look at what we have just in the little bit we've studied so far. This guy is frazzled, fearful, stressed, tired. He's in a never-ending effort to compensate for the sin of those that he surrounded himself by. And I think most notably, most importantly, you don't see Lot spending a lot of time with the Lord. For all I know, this is the first time he's seen anything from God in the form of these messengers, these angels, in his whole time in Canaan. And when the Lord does visit Lot, when the Lord finally breaks through and shows up on his doorstep, what's his purpose for being there? It's a rescue mission. It's as if God has said, I can't let you go a day longer under these circumstances, Lot. You've messed yourself up so much. I've got to step in and solve the problem for you. Get out of here. And we'll study more about how he does that here in the coming verses. Look at verse 6. When Lot went out to them at the doorway and shut the door behind him and said, Please, my brothers, do not act wickedly. Now, behold, I have two daughters who have not had relations with men. Please, let me bring them out to you and do to them whatever you like. Only do nothing to these men in so much as they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, stand aside. Furthermore, they said, this one came in as an alien and already he's acting like a judge. Now we will treat you worse than them. So they pressed hard against Lot and came near to break the door. This is probably the most disturbing part of Lot's story, at least so far. We see that he's determined to save his guests from from humiliation, to say nothing of the the violence that's going to come upon them, the mob attack. And it's not hard, I guess, to understand that he wants to protect his guests, not only just for the obvious compassion that he shows, but in the day this took place, it was especially important to take care of your guests. In the ancient East, it was supremely important for the host to care well for their for their guests. And Lot understood this requirement all too well. And so he's determined here to preserve something. But I want you to know what he's determined to preserve most of all. It's not them. It's not uh, for justice sake. It's to preserve his social responsibility and his personal dignity. Lot's all about Lot right now. So he tries to go outside to reason with this crowd. He goes out. You see the scene, of course. He's had to open the door, shut it behind him, block the way. And he says something I find very interesting, very telling. He says to these men, brothers, it's a revealing term. He has come to identify with these men as with brothers, at least in some sense. Now, clearly, he's not related to them. He knows he's not related to them. He didn't mean it in that sense, of course. Back in Genesis 13, verse 8, Abraham himself calls himself and Lot by this same Hebrew word. Brothers, or more literally, it means kin, relative. So the fact that Lot now calls these evil men of Sodom his brothers, it's very interesting choice of words on his part, because we know they're not physically related, but he calls them a word that suggests they're of the same family. Not even Jesus, not even our Lord was willing to call his own earthly mother and brothers by the same word. In Matthew 12:47, someone said to Jesus, Behold, your mother and your brothers are standing outside seeking to speak to you. And Jesus answered the one who was telling him and said, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, 
Behold my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father who is in heaven, he is my brother and sister and mother. That's our Lord speaking about it. While Mary and James and whoever else was in his family was standing out the door, he, he, he dismisses them in this context and says, when you look to me and you say, who are my brothers? These are the groups you need to be thinking about. Then in what way did Lot mean it? Were these his friends? Is that what he means? Friends? Look at their response to him. Look what they say to him. They quickly distance themselves from him. They say, you're just an alien and now you want to be our judge? While Lot wanted to call them brothers, they said, you're not even one of us. And they push him aside. Now this is clear that they're not brothers, not in any way. But what's really becoming clear is Lot has forgotten where his true family lies, the one from whom he should find his identity. And I'm not speaking about the physical family here anymore. I'm talking about his spiritual family. Saved by faith, trusting in God's promises, made him a child of God. And as a child of God, his family became the children of God. It is an absolute, literal truth for me to say that the believers that are in this room with me this morning, men and women, are my brothers and sisters while in my case, personally, my own flesh and blood brothers and sister, none of whom are believers, are not my brothers and sister. Because this body is not my permanent body. This world is not my permanent home. When I leave this body and I leave this home and I enter into the next, who will be there? Only those who are my brothers and sisters in faith. Now, I certainly hope and pray that one day my physical brothers and sister will join me in being my spiritual brothers and sister. But that's in God's hands. And should it not come to pass, then they will cease being my brothers and sister in any sense of the word, for I will never see them again. It's a hard truth. It makes us yearn to want to reach them for the gospel now, which is a good thing. But the fact of Scripture is there is no basis whatsoever for Lot to call them brothers, not physical, not spiritual, not even from the basis of friendship, for they rejected him. Who was fooled by this supposed brotherly relationship? Only Lot. They weren't fooled. Don't ever forget that as much as we may want to identify with the world in some way, at some time, in some fashion, they will never accept us unless we are willing to walk away from everything that identifies us as a child of God. That's the bargain they want to make. As long as we have any semblance of faith evident in our walk, we will convict them of their sin just by the association. That's the intent God has. So if you want to find alignment with the world, you need to understand they will never accept you. They will never see you as them unless you forsake everything that makes you different. And ironically, we're going to be the only ones who are fooled. Comically here, I love the way Lot does this. It's just, it's so sad, but it's funny. He asks the crowd, don't act wickedly. All right, what possibility does this statement have of actually persuading the crowd? If it was as simple as asking wicked people not to act wickedly, then we wouldn't need jails, we wouldn't need police, right? The whole world would be a beautiful place. If this worked, why didn't he just say it a long time ago? It doesn't work and he knows it's not going to work. Lot is unwilling to acknowledge that these people that he has chosen to identify with and surround himself with are not his family, 
not his friends, they do not share his values, and they do not have the possibility of, of doing any of those things. It's outside their ability. Finally, you see the depths to which Lot now stoops. This is one of the most memorable places in the Old Testament, and precisely because as we study what we just read and we think about it, knowing it happened, and maybe even trying to place ourselves in Lot's place for just a moment, we all come away, I'm assuming, puzzled, dumbstruck, completely without understanding of how this could happen. Here's a man who unbelievably offers to this ravenous, violent mob his two virgin daughters and says pointedly, do whatever you want with them rather than give up his visitors. Now, as the father of an unmarried teenage daughter, I find his statement incomprehensible. I have no way whatsoever to even gain a, a ledge from which I can understand what he did. I, it doesn't make any sense to me. Could you imagine doing this? How would he explain this to his daughters? What was Lot thinking? The first and the most obvious answer to that question is he, he viewed this option as the lesser of two evils. But that's still a pretty poor answer, wouldn't you agree? Most likely, Lot has weighed two possible courses of action. But he's weighed them in terms of how they affect his personal Reputation. Think about it. If he allows his guests to be raped, his reputation as a host is ruined and it'll be a profound embarrassment upon himself. But if his daughters are assaulted by a lawless crowd, well, then his family and he are just victims. They're just victims of crime. And he would rather be known as a victim of crime than as a man who was not a good host to his guests. Whatever Lot was thinking, this offer speaks volumes about the state of the man's spirit and the corruption that's evident in his life and in his walk with the Lord. He's saved by God's grace, and that's not changing. It is true we know because of the Word of God in the New Testament that tells us so. But he is a sorry excuse as a follower of the living God. He is an example and held up as such in Scripture as a man who, though saved by grace, is captivated by the world and I am sure the first day he arrived in Sodom, he would never have offered his daughters to a crowd of unruly men. But 25 years of living in Sodom brought him to this point. What kind of bargains did he have to make along the way of those 25 years to keep himself safe from those marauding crowds? you ever think about that? Given that he was willing to offer his daughters in this case, what wouldn't he have done to keep peace in that city, to allow himself to stay anchored in this city? How did he let himself get there? When was enough enough? The constant barrage of sin wore him down. And he became the kind of man willing to trade daughters for the sake of strangers. Let his long, slow fall be a reminder, be a warning sign for all of us. Bargaining with the world is just like the old adage, sleeping with the enemy. It's exactly a great analogy. The bargain that you make with the world is like sleeping with the enemy. You've crawled into bed, so to speak, with something or someone who wants to extinguish the light within you and crush your spirit. That's their nature. That's their program. And you're sleeping with them. So you've got to keep one eye open because you don't know when they're going to attack. Is that a restful sleep? And you grow weary when you have to fight like that, don't you? Over time, you just can't hold up. After a while, you're just going to fall asleep and let the attacks come. And the longer we play the game that the enemy invites us into, 
through a bargaining with the world, the more tired you get, the more the world starts to win. I think of examples of what this would look like in our world today. I think of those who, who kind of give themselves over to the entertainment industry, whether as a performer or whether as, a, as someone who consumes it. And I'm just kind of wrapping it up under that term. I'm not saying everyone in Hollywood is wrong or bad or it's a stereotype, but if you give yourself over to that world, it's going to hypnotize you. Through movies, books, music, video games these days, it's going to eventually start to wear you down. Eventually, the standards slip. Eventually, things that you wouldn't have accepted a year ago, you'll accept. You sell yourself and your soul to the mall at the altar of materialism or the office at the altar of careerism or at the golf course at the altar of escapism, those things eventually take away your peace of mind. They take away your spiritual energy. I'm not saying those things are by themselves the problem. We're talking about how much you want to be identified with those things, how much those things drive who you are as a person. It's just like Luke chapter 8 when Jesus talks about the seed that falls into soil that's filled with weeds and thorns and thistles. And as you're trying to grow up and mature in the Lord, all around you are all these things growing up with you that choke you off and stress you out and keep you from maturing. And so if we as Christians allow ourselves to be associated with vice and vulgarity and crudeness and promiscuity and paganism and occultism and brutality and materialism and whatever else, just watch what it does to your spiritual condition over time. It wears you down. So why even go there? You know, the first year or two might go really well with that kind of a challenge, but try 25 years later and look what it did to Lot. Let's reflect on Abraham instead. Think about his life. Think about the fact that though he wasn't perfect, he never left the tent. He never gave it up. He never traded it in for whatever the world was offering. He remained dependent on the Lord. He rested in the Lord. Because he always felt the Lord's provision was enough. He always felt the Lord's voice was the only praise that he wanted. The Lord's visit was a lifetime of honor wrapped up in the moment. And his peace came from looking to eternity for his fulfillment. We'll come back next week and finish this story and watch how God deals with the believer who is unfortunately living a worldly life. Let's pray. I pray, Father, that as I've approached your text this morning and considered what it offered and spoke as my mind was led and my heart was led, I pray, Father, that what was spoken came from the Spirit and was directed into the hearts of those who heard. As I preach, I preach to myself, Father, but I pray that you would use the simple preaching of a man to reach others with the supernatural message of your word. And for any, Father, who have felt the conviction or heard something that may bring a pause to their thinking for what they do and how they do it. I pray, Father, you would follow through on what you began here in a way that would clearly tell them that you were speaking and they might inquire and you would respond and there would be a dialogue that would offer an opportunity to, to serve you in a better way. And for many others, Father, who have probably heard this message and feel affirmed again in what they're doing, that they are walking in with you and, and resting in you, I pray, Father, they would be encouraged and they would know, Father, that this is the way in which you have called us to live. And they are not missing anything in this world, that the world may offer many things that sound good at first, but they always come with a bargain, one that we don't want to make. Let our church, Father, be a representation of what it means to follow and rest in you. And, and yet, Father, never let our resting be such that we wouldn't take action to serve you in an active way. And let us be a church that is seen in, in both ways. As we go into a time of communion, Father, I pray that you would give us...
the reflection that your word deserves. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.